first Christmas song. So the Christmas season is now upon us. We have the decorations. Yeah, you can clap for that. You can be excited about that. Yeah. We love it. It's great. There's so many great things about the Christmas season. Uh, obviously, we, we get to celebrate our Savior's birth, which is uh, amazing when we think about what that means and the significance that holds for us. Uh, Also, though, we get to spend time with our families often, and uh, that's a great time. Hopefully that it's a time where we get to find at least a little bit of time to kind of take a deep breath and slow down a little bit. I know we have to work for that, but hopefully you get a little of that time this Christmas season. But if we're being honest, and we got to be honest because we're in church, right? When we think about Christmas, we think about presents right we think about getting gifts and uh, there's something that happens with the whole gift giving and receiving uh, each year and sometimes I, I don't know if this is true for you but it's true for me sometimes we're hoping for one thing and we really really want that one thing but we get something different so maybe some of you out there are hoping this year that when you tear into your gift it's going to be a, a brand new uh, Xbox One S, all right? Or maybe for some of you, you're hoping for the, the brand new iPhone 7, or maybe you're hoping for one of those, you know, DeWalt 20-volt lithium-ion power tool sets and a table saw and a chop saw. Okay, maybe that's my list. Maybe that's not your list, but all right. But we, there's things that we hope we get. But the problem is sometimes we, we start tearing into our gifts and we pull out what's inside and it's not what we want. Excuse me one second. (laughs) Getting what we hoped for, we get an ugly Christmas sweater with a reindeer protruding out of our chest. Yeah, you've been there, right? We've all experienced that. You laugh because you not you're not laughing at this, are you? So we we've all been there, right? We've hoped for one thing and we've gotten something totally different that we don't really even want or think we'll ever use. And uh, we experience that disappointment. When I think about Christmas time, you know, Christmas has passed in my life. Um, there was a, a point in time I remember when I was in college and I got a gift from my grandmother. Now, my grandma was usually pretty good at gift-giving. She could rock the sales at Boscov's. That was her store of choice. And, um, and she usually did really, really well for, uh, for me and my siblings. But one year, she gave me this shirt. All right? And if this is your style, I apologize. But when I was in college, this was not my style. It was like a brown suede, like fake suede, button-down shirt. And I was, I was like, I will never, ever wear this. And, I, and so in that moment, right, I had a choice. I had to choose what I was going to do. And, and when we get something we don't want, we have a choice. Are we going to fake it or are we going to face it? And I faked it with Grandma. Uh, I just pretended like I liked it. I think it had an ugly, um, like a sweater that went with it too, not a Christmas sweater, but just a, an ugly sweater that went with it. And I, uh, I chose not to tell her I didn't like it, and I chose to hide it in the back of my closet until she asked me about it one day, and I wore it next Sunday to dinner with Grandma. And uh, so it got worn a couple times out of guilt, um, but I chose to kind of fake it and not tell Grandma uh, that I really didn't want that gift. I-, I can think of another time when I was in high school. I got a gift from my mother, and it was, it was this. It was a, a black and pink um, checkered flannel shirt. Now, some of you are like, 
I would wear that, and today you might, but in the early 90s in high school, I couldn't have not have pulled that off without suffering much ridicule. And, uh, but this time, I chose something different, which was unusual for me in my pattern. I chose to face it, and I chose to tell my mom, hey, I really don't like this gift, and I'll probably never wear it. And she might have been a little disappointed, because you get disappointed if you give something to somebody that they don't want, uh, but she was willing to go exchange that and got something that I could use and something that I would enjoy. And just like at Christmas, when we, you know, we have a choice of what to do when we get things we don't want, we face the same scenario in our lives as well in a lot of different ways. And, and sometimes we're given things in life that we, that we don't want or that we really didn't ask for. And, and it's out of our control. It's not really up to us to decide. And, and that's what this series we're going to be doing um, all um, December long called Ugly Christmas Sweater is all about. We're trying to get us to ask the questions, what are the ugly Christmas sweaters? In your life, what are some things in your life and in your story that you didn't choose, but yet you've been given? And hopefully each week as we look at a different um, topic or subject, that we can maybe begin to develop a little bit different perspective on them and maybe view these ugly things in a little bit different way. And this morning, the ugly sweater that I want to talk about is, is relationships that we didn't choose. And in particular, I want to talk about our family relationships. And each of us were born into a family, right? And we didn't get to choose that, did we? God put us where God wanted us. And every family story is just a little bit different. And some of you probably look back on your family story with um, great joy. Uh, and some of you may look back with great sorrow. Some of you may have amazing memories of your family. And some of you um, may feel a lot of pain when you look back at your family story. You may have fondness and admiration, or you may... Uh, feel anger or sadness boiling up when you think back to your family and, and the story that they wrote into your life. And maybe some of us look back and we just feel a little bit indifferent, no strong feelings one way or another. It just was what it was. And even though all our stories with our families are different, the so one thing that's true about all families is that the families that we grew up in, regardless of our story, had a huge impact on who we are and how we see the world and how we uh, view life and how we relate to others. And often we don't really even realize the impact that our families have on us, uh, especially not, uh, often not until a little bit later in life. But it's something that's really important that I think we need to look at uh, and that each of us needs to consider. What is the impact that my family that I grew up in had on me in the way that I view life and faith and other people? And uh, author Pete Scazzaro in a book called Emotionally Healthy Spirituality talks about this subject. He talks about its importance and he talks about why this is something that we need to recognize and a key issue that we need to face in our faith journey. And you may not say, well, what's the connection between our faith and our family? And I, hopefully today we'll kind of see that. But um, I have a few quotes I want to read from his book that just kind of, um, I think, put in some great words the impact that our families have on our life and on our faith. And he says this, he says, the blessings and sins of our families going back two to three generations, profoundly impact who we are today. Discipleship, or following Jesus, requires putting off the sinful patterns of our family of origin and relearning how to do life God's way in God's family. He also says what happens in one generation often repeats itself in the next, and the consequences of actions and decisions taken in one generation affect those who follow. And each of our family members, those who raised us through childhood, have imprinted certain ways of behaving and thinking 
into us. They're hardwired into our brains and into our DNA, so much so that apart from the intervention of God himself in biblical discipleship, we simply bring these patterns of relating into our closest relationships as adults. And so I think you can see as he kind of paints that picture, the, the huge impact and the implications that this has for us in our life and in our faith. And when we think about our families, no matter what our story is, they produce in us some really, really great things, which we should celebrate and be grateful for, but we have to face the reality that they produce in us some really, really sinful and sometimes destructive patterns as well. And so as we take a step back, uh, hopefully this morning, and we think about our family and our story, and the question that I want us to ask ourselves is, what are we going to do with it? What are we going to do with it? Are we going to fake it and pretend like it's not there and try to ignore the things that are there or stuff it down deep inside where no one's going to see it? Or are you willing to face your story and deal with it and call out the lies and shine truth on it like we sang, Dave highlighted in that song we sang and work to change those things? And the thing that I know is true that I want to emphasize today is that no matter what your family story is, this is true, that God wants to use your family story to accomplish his good plan in you and through you. He wants to use the good things that we've got from our families, and he wants to use the difficult and the bad things that we've gained from our family to accomplish what he wants to do in your life and then through you in the, to the lives of those around you. And so to help us understand this maybe a little more and kind of wrestle through as we, we think about this this morning, I want to look at the life of a man um, in the Bible. His name is Joseph. And it's not that Joseph, who um, was uh, Mary's husband, who had Jesus, um, although we could probably look at his life as well. But this is Joseph from the Old Testament. And so if you have your Bibles or if you want to use one, the guys will pass some out to you. Um, we're going to be in the book of Genesis, the first book of the Bible, in chapter 37. It's hard to read your Bible with a reindeer. All right, got to hold it up high here. All right, so you can pull your Bibles open. If you're using our Bibles, it's on page 31. Um, and we're going to be kind of tracing Joseph's life. And, and so uh, you have to get your fingers ready to do a lot of scrolling if you're on your device or flipping if you're using your, uh, your Bible because his life kind of stretches from chapter 37 to chapter 50. And don't worry, I won't read all of that to you this morning. Um, but as you're finding that, let me give you a, a little bit of, of a family history of, of Joseph. And let's look what his family kind of passed on to him and, and where he found himself in his life. So if you trace his, his family history back, his great-grandfather was Abraham. And Abraham was the man that God chose to, to build his nation, his chosen people, the Israelite nation, through him. And he made a promise to him that he would make a great nation out of his descendants. And then his grandpa was Isaac, and that was the, the one that God then chose through Isaac to continue to keep that promise that he made. And his father was a man named Jacob. And again, he, God made that same promise again to Jacob that through their line he was going to create a great nation. And often as you're reading through the Old Testament and in the Bible, especially in the Old Testament, you hear the phrase, um, you hear God referred to as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And these were great men of God. They were all mentioned in Hebrews chapter 11, which is the, some people call that the hall of faith, um, and where it highlights the great faith of these men. And they were men that lived by faith. They were, they were wealthy and successful businessmen. They were great leaders. They were the patriarchs, as I mentioned, of God's chosen people. And they had this amazing legacy that they passed on from generation to generation in their family. And as we see in Joseph's life, or as we will see, many of these great qualities were passed along to him as well. And, and you might even say that Joseph surpassed them as kind of in his success in his life. 
But unfortunately, that's not the only part of the legacy that they passed on. There was a dark side of the legacy as well. And they, they passed um, some sinful patterns from generation to generation as well. And here's a few of them that I want to just highlight real quickly um, from Joseph's family line. And the first one was they had a pattern of lying. And Abraham lied twice, um, as we have recorded in, in Genesis, about his wife Sarah being his sister, so that the men in the land that God had sent him to live in wouldn't kill him he was afraid of and take her because she was so beautiful. And then you go to the next generation, Isaac and, and his wife Rebecca, and their marriage was kind of defined by lies. Isaac did the same thing his father did, and when he went to uh, a strange land, he, he lied and said his wife was really his sister because he feared the people there. And, and Rebecca helped her son Jacob to deceive his father to help him steal the, the birthright or the, um, the, the inheritance that was meant to go to their oldest son Esau. And Jacob, his name means deceiver. His life was characterized by lies as well. He obviously lied to his father to steal the inheritance. He, he misled and deceived his father-in-law, and, and we could trace more and more of that. But there, they had a family pattern of lying. They had another family pattern of favoritism in their family. Dads had favorites, and uh, that's never a good situation. Abraham favored his son Ishmael, even though God had promised that uh, he was going to make the great, uh, great nation through his son Isaac. Um, Isaac favored Esau, and Jacob favored his son Joseph that we're going to look at today, and then later, actually, another son, Benjamin, as well, because they came from his favorite wife in his old age. So lying and favoritism, and one more I want to just highlight is cutoffs. There was cutoffs in this family. Maybe you've experienced that in your family. Isaac's brother Ishmael was cut off and sent away from the family because of conflict, and Jacob was cut off from Esau after he stole his birthright, and he had to run for his life, really, uh, for several years. And Joseph was cut off from his whole family when his brothers, as we'll see in a little bit, sold him into slavery. And we could probably go on and on, but this great and important family in God's word was far from perfect. And we can see the effects of brokenness showing up in their family and in, and in their lives and in Joseph's life and what he, had to, uh, what he had to navigate. And he had to navigate a couple of tough things. He had to navigate this strangely blended family. And his father had two wives, and I don't have time to get into to that, but um, he had a, two wives, and they were both sisters, and one he preferred over the other. And so they were always vying for his attention and for his love, and, and they thought if they could give him sons, then they would love them more, him, they would love her more than the other. And when they couldn't have kids, they would, they would, give, um, they would give Jacob their, their servant girls, to, like as a surrogate mother, to have babies for their side, you know. And so he had these four women that were... Uh, wives of Jacob and having kids with all of them. So you can imagine the, the strange blend in this family, and, and you can imagine the, the conflict of, of growing up with all these siblings from four different mothers all in the same tent, uh, or the same tent community, I guess. And it created, you can imagine the conflict that we create. We have conflict in, in our families, right? And you can imagine just how this situation um, just caused that to escalate. And this is how bad it it got. So in chapter 37, we won't look at it for the sake of time, but there's several places. And you see, you see Joseph, and he's kind of the tattletale of the family. He's the youngest at this point, but he comes back and it says in, in verse 2 that he gives a bad report about his brothers. Any tattletales in your families? Yeah, and you know the conflict that that creates, right? And they were, it says that they hated him a few verses later. They hated him. And, and it wasn't just the hate, you know, when our kids are mad and they say, I hate you, right? This was, they, it was deep-seated hate. Uh, so much so that it says they couldn't even speak a kind word to him. Now, my kids sometimes 
have a hard time speaking kind words to one another. But they do at other times do that. These guys couldn't even speak a single kind word about their brother Joseph. And it says they were jealous of him, and eventually they planned to kill him. So some serious conflict that he grew up in. But it wasn't all just because of their strange family situation, but um, it was also because he was his father's favorite. And you can imagine how that adds to the story. And so he was his favorite, like I said, because he was born to his wife, Rachel, who was his favorite wife, um, and was born in his old age. And so he favored him. And this seemed to breed kind of an arrogance in Joseph, as you see this through, through chapter 37, even though he was younger than his brothers. Look at verse, uh, chapter 37, verse 3 and 4. It says this. It says, Now Israel, which was another name for uh, Jacob, loved Joseph more than any of his other sons, because he had been born to him in old age, and he made him a richly ornamented robe for him. And when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, he hated them and could not speak, or they, sorry, they hated him, and could not speak a kind word to him. And it goes on to tell how Joseph had these two dreams, and, and he came to his brothers and, and kind of arrogantly bragged about his dreams, where they, in his dreams, they bowed down to him. And, and you can imagine what that would do to the older brothers when the younger brother comes and is like, you're going to bow down to me someday. And uh, again, in, in verse 14, you see Jacob, uh, foolishly, I think, sending his son uh, Joseph to go check on his older brothers while they're out tending the sheep, and, and just putting him in another not good situation and his brothers see him coming from a distance and they plot to kill him and they don't kill him they actually decide against it but they do sell him to some merchants that are passing by as a slave and they go back and tell their father again perpetuating the family pattern of lying and tell him that he was eaten by an animal and they take his special coat and they tear it and they put blood on it and they show it to their father and tell him that he's dead and so joseph seems to experience a lot of turmoil during his first 18 years of life some things that he was just born into although he has responsibility in it as well um, but it kind of culminates in this really devastating circumstance where he loses everything that he knows he went from being the favorite to being a slave in the matter of moments and he lost his family and he lost his home and he lost his freedom and his culture and everything that he knew and everything that was familiar and at this point joseph's got a choice of what he's going to do with what he's been dealt by his family. As he heads off to the land of Egypt as a slave, what's he going to do? He could stuff it and just try to forget about it and ignore it and hope that it doesn't come back. He could play the victim and blame others and, and probably live a pretty bitter and angry rest of his life. He could try to spiritualize it and just chalk it up to being the cost of one of God's chosen people. And then he'd probably live an inauthentic life, trying to play the part, but feeling empty inside. All these responses, if he chose them, would keep him stuck. Stuck right where he was. It put a lid on his ability to change and to grow and to become who God wanted him to be. And the other choice that's left is he could cho choose to own it. He could choose to face it. He could choose to, to deal with what he's lost and to, to walk into the situation that he had been dealt. And if he does, it would allow him to be able to move forward and to move towards what God wanted for him and had planned for him. And the reality is each one of us, like Joseph, have that same choice. What are you going to do with your family story? Or maybe the better question is, what have you been doing with your family story? Are you stuffing it? Are you trying to forget it? Are you trying to play the victim? Or are you willing to own it? 
And the thing that I want to remind you of, right, is that God wants to use our family story to accomplish what he wants in our life. But the only way that that can happen is if we decide that we're going to face it. And we don't have all the details in, of, of the rest of, or, or all the details in, in the Bible of Joseph's life, but we have enough, I think, to take a look and see how it unfolds that this is something that he was able to do. He was able to own his story, and then God was able to use that in his life to do some amazing things. And we see that by the way his story ends. But the question that leaves for us then today is, so how do we do that? How do we own our story? How do we face the things that we've been given but we didn't ask for? And I want to look at his life and, and, and as we trace some things through to hopefully find some things that help us to be able to move forward in our lives and not stay stuck, maybe where we've been for a while. So I, I want to first look at the first thing that I think helped Joseph to do this in his life, and I'm going to kind of quickly as I can trace down through his story and, and, and highlight some of the details that I think give us some clues. And the first thing that I think helped Joseph to do this was that Joseph had a big view of God. All through his life, Joseph had this view of God, view that God was in control, view that he was good, view that he could be trusted even when the circumstances all around him were not very good. And so as I kind of trace through this, I'm going to highlight a few places um, where we can see in his story that that this shows up. And so as I said, he was sold um, to merchants. They took him down to Egypt, and he was sold there again um, as a slave into the house of a man named Potiphar. Um, He showed some great responsibility and hard work as a slave, and he soon made his way up the ranks, and Potiphar made him in charge of everything in his household. He didn't worry about anything but the food he ate, he said. And uh, so Joseph was taking care of his household. Unfortunately, uh, Potiphar's wife um, started to like him a little bit, and uh, she repeatedly tried to seduce him and and get him to come to bed with her. And and Joseph shows great integrity, and look what he says in chapter 39, verse 9. I want to highlight this real quick. He says to her, one time when she's trying to um, seduce him, she says, no one is greater in this house than I am. My master has uh, withheld nothing from me except you because you are his wife. How then could I do such a, thing, a wicked thing and sin, look what he says, against God? And I want to highlight that because he could say, and sin against my master, which that would make sense, or sin against you, which that would be true, or sin against myself and my own body, which we talked about um, last month in these issues of sexual sin. But he said, I can't do this because of how God would view it. He had a perspective and looked at things in life from God's view. Now she obviously gets mad at that, and uh, she grabs his arm, and he slips out of his coat to get away, and she uses that to kind of frame him and convince her husband that he was the one that tried to come on to her. So Potiphar throws him in jail, and he goes um, back from the top, back to the bottom again. And while he's in um, prison, he, in a short time, shows himself to be trustworthy and responsible there too, and uh, he goes from just being a prisoner to being uh, the second in command. He was still a prisoner, but he was like the warden's right-hand man, and he had a charge over the whole prison and during that time a couple of uh, guys that had worked for the pharaoh of egypt the man who was in charge of all of egypt uh, were thrown into prison and while they're there they had a couple strange dreams and they're talking about them one day and joseph hears them and and they ask him what we have no idea what these means and he says this in in verse 40 verse 8 he says to them he says um do not interpretations belong to god tell me your dreams and again um his view of god and god's ability and his power to to, uh, to, to tell them what these dreams meant. And, and he could have just said, well, tell me what they are, and, uh, you know, and I'll tell you what they mean. But again, he, he had this view of God that was very big and very large. So he tells them what they meant, and he says, you're gonna, uh, the cupbearer, you're going to get out in three days, and baker, you're 
going to get executed in three days. Um, it comes true, and the cupbearer goes back to work for the pharaoh, who has a dream a couple years later, and is saying, I have no idea what these dreams mean. Who's going to tell me what they mean? And the cupbearer remembers Joseph and recommends him to the pharaoh. So the pharaoh brings him to him, and he asks him what they mean. And, and verse 41, uh, chapter, or chapter 41, verse 16, he says this to pharaoh. He says, I cannot do it, meaning I can't interpret your dreams. Joseph replied to Pharaoh, but God will give Pharaoh the answer he desires. Again, he is standing, he's still a prisoner, right? He's standing in front of the one man in the whole nation that could free him like that. And he chooses again to say, this is not something I can do, but God can do this for you. It could have been his ticket out. He said, well, I'll tell you what it is if you'll pardon me as soon as I do. Um, But he had this big view of God. And and so he tells Pharaoh the meaning of his dreams Uh, two more times. He says, God has revealed this to Pharaoh and God has shown Pharaoh He tells him the dreams mean there's going to be seven years of great abundance in the land, followed by seven years of great famine. He tells him that you need to develop a plan to store up as much crops as you can during the seven years of abundance so that you can survive and actually all the known world can survive during the seven years of famine. And uh, Pharaoh's so impressed with his wisdom and, and what he tells him, he puts him in charge now of the whole country. So from prisoner to Pharaoh's number two guy. And so during those years of abundance, he stores all the grain up, and during the years of famine, he's in charge of distributing it to those who come um, in the land of Egypt and in the world all around them. And as he's doing that one day, the only food left in the whole world is in Egypt. So Jacob, who's up in the land of Canaan and, and is starving to death with his family, send his ten sons down to get food in Egypt. And when they come to Joseph to buy the food, he recognizes them as his brothers after probably decades, maybe 10 to 30 years in that time span. And, uh, and, and he recognizes them, but they don't recognize him. He looks like another Egyptian to them. And so he decides he's going to test them. And so he accuses them of being spies. He puts them in prison. He tells them, I'm going to keep one of you. I'm going to send the other nine home. And uh, if what you're saying is true about who you are, bring that youngest son you mentioned, Benjamin, who Benjamin was actually his full brother. He had the same mother and the same father. And he says, bring him down here and prove to me that what the story you're telling me is true. And so they head back home uh, without one of their brothers, and they tell Jacob what happened, and he refuses to send Benjamin. Because now he's his new favorite, and he's unwilling to live through losing his favorite son again. As time passes, they're going to starve. And I think he probably comes to his senses and realizes, I can either lose my son by doing this, or I can lose him by we all starve to death if we stay here. So he sends reluctantly Benjamin and the brothers back down to Egypt. Um, and, and Joseph, again, as he sees them coming, decides to test them again, this time by keeping his brother, his full brother, Benjamin. And I think what he's doing here is he's, he wants to see if his brothers are going to do the same thing to Benjamin that they did to him. Well, they sell him out, turn tail, and run back home with the food that they came to get and leave him there. But they don't. One of the older brothers offers to stay in Benjamin's place. He says, I can't stand to see my father go through that pain again. And at this point, Joseph must have seen enough because he comes clean. He tells his brothers who they are. He he weeps incredibly and reveals himself to them. They're terrified. They're afraid he's going to take revenge because now he's in a place of power over them. And uh, flip over to chapter 45. This is what Joseph says to reassure them when they're fearful he's going to throw them in prison or maybe even kill them. Look at verse 5. He says to them, he says, Do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here because because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. And verse uh, 7 says, God sent me ahead of you to prepare uh, or to preserve for you a remnant on the earth and to save your lives. 
by this great deliverance. And again, in verse 8, he talks about it was God who sent him there. And so you see over and over again this view uh, that Joseph had of, of who God is and how big he was and how much he was in control. And just to kind of finish the story for you so you're not left hanging, the family move, all the family moves down to Egypt. Um, Jacob is, is, or is reunited with his son Joseph. Um, after 17 years, he, he dies, um, and his brothers are fearful again. Now that my father's, our father's dead, now Joseph is going to take his revenge. And again, he reassures them. Um, look at verse 50. This is a key verse um, for today and, and, and maybe even for this whole series. Listen to what Joseph says about this. It's very powerful. Verse 19, he says, But Joseph said to them, Do not be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. And again, he has to reassure them one more time before he dies that God is going to, you know, God is surely going to come to your aid, they say in verse, he says in verse 24, and take you back out of this land and fulfill the promises that he made to our family a long time ago. And so, so as you can see, as we kind of trace down through that really quickly, that Joseph had this view of God that was way bigger than himself and bigger than his circumstances and bigger than the pain that he experienced. He, he had a view of God that was big enough that he, he knew that God could, could redeem his messed up family situation and he could redeem his messed up situations and accomplish a good plan in him and through him. But it wasn't just this big view uh, of God that helped him as he was confronting his family story. The second thing that we, I think we see in Joseph's life is that Joseph didn't avoid or stuff his pain. Because of the lies and the favoritism and the mess of the family, right, his own poor choices as well, Joseph had lost a lot. Right? I mentioned he'd lost his home, he'd lost his culture, his freedom, he'd lost his relationships and virtually everything that he knew in his life. And, and when we experience loss, it's always accompanied by pain. And, and often when we're faced with pain, sometimes we don't know what to do with it. So we try to just avoid feeling it because we don't know how to, what to do with it. Or, or sometimes we're afraid that that, that pain is just going to consume us and, and, and define us. And so we try to keep it stuffed down where it doesn't come out all the time. And as we look through Joseph's life and the details, as he walked through a, a pretty difficult life in many ways, uh, we see that he was able to face those losses and to kind of enter into that grief. And, and, and let me trace through that with you real quick. Flip back to chapter 41. During the, the years of, of plenty that he, uh, they were experienced, those seven years, he got married and, uh, and had a couple sons. And his sons' names give us a clue about his, his view of, of, of walking into these, this pain and walking into this grief. Look at verse, um, he mentions their names in verse 51 um, and 52. And his first son, is, he names Manasseh. And it says, it is because God has made me forget all of my trouble in all of my father's household. Now, first, that may sound like, wait a minute, that just sounds like he's trying to push it all to the side and forget everything that happened. But as we look at how his life unfolded, I don't think that's what he did. I think what he's referring to is God helped bring him to a place where he was able to put that stuff, to walk through it, to deal with it, and put it to a place where it wasn't central in his life. It wasn't defining him. It wasn't consuming him. He was able to move past it into what God wanted for him. And we see it when, he came, when his brothers came and, and, and his response to them and, and, and what he shared with them about, you intended this for harm, but God intended this for good. And his son Ephraim, he named his, his second son Ephraim, he said it's because God has made me fruitful. And, and recognizing God's hand in his life and how God had blessed him in all these strange situations. But notice what it says right after that. He says, in the land of my suffering. He was focusing on what God helped him to accomplish, but he didn't deny the pain that he faced along the way. 
he acknowledged it and he didn't avoid it. And we don't just see this in his son's names. Um, we don't have time to look at these real closely, but as you, as you go through this story, you see him walking into grief and walking into pain regularly. In chapter 42, when he hears his brothers, when they come down for the first time, he hears them talking um, about what they did to him. They're like, we're getting thrown in prison because of what we did to Joseph so many years ago. And he starts weeping as that comes back to the forefront, as he's confronted with that again. Chapter 45, when he tells his brothers who he is, it says that he wept so loudly the people outside the room they were in could hear him. And in verse four, or chapter 46, when his father comes down to Egypt and he sees him after 10, 20, maybe 30 years, it says he wept for a long time. And in chapter 50, when his father passes away, again, he's confronted with grief and he weeps. And these are just a few indications, I think, that help us see that Joseph in his life, though he experienced a lot of pain, he didn't avoid it or he didn't try to stuff it or he didn't try to just push it behind him and ignore it, that he faces and he grieves those losses that he experienced and that he was faced with. And that's an important part about facing the realities of our, the family stories in our lives. And uh, I think because of these two things in, in Joseph's life, his view of God and his ability to, to walk into that uh, pain in his life, the third thing I think we th- see from his life is Joseph changed the family pattern, or patterns maybe, with God's help. And we don't have a ton of details beyond the story that I told you here um, about how the rest of his life plays out, but I think as we can see through his life and what we do have in, in recorded here for us is that the patterns of lying and the favoritism and the cutoffs seem to disappear from Joseph's life and from his family. Now, it by no means, me- that, by no means means that his family's perfect. <laughs> his family's not perfect. Right? No family is perfect. Uh, no family in this room is perfect. No family in God's word is perfect. God uses us in our brokenness. But... He didn't just stay with what he had been given. He did the work that he needed to change it. And though he passed his own struggles on to his generations to come, he changed these generational things that had been plaguing their families for a long time. And so even though we can't choose the family we're born into and we can't control the the good things that they bless us with and we can't control the sinful patterns that they pass on to us, we do have a choice with what we do with them. And God wants us to face these issues in our life. He wants us to confront the ugly Christmas sweaters. And he wants us to grow in our faith through facing these things. And this morning, whether this is something that you're hearing and you're like, I've never really thought this through very much, or you're a person that has done a lot of work in this area, the reality is that um, we all have to walk into this. And, and we have to do it over and over again. The things in our, in our Family goes so deep. He used the word in our, into our DNA, and we have to continue to be willing to look at those things. And, and Christmas is one of those times when we are with our families and, and we're confronted with our stories and, and confronted with the things that our families have passed on to us. And, and, and so it's a time that I think we need to be willing to take a look at these things. And I want to talk real quickly of a few things that I think that we can do, hopefully maybe even this Christmas season, to, to engage in what God wants to do in us and in our families. And the first thing I think that we have to do is just be willing to identify sinful family patterns in our life. And this may feel really disrespectful. And you're like, I don't want to dig up the garbage in my family. I don't want to dig up that junk. I don't feel like I'm blaming my parents. And the reality is this is just, it's just true. 
and, and as much as we maybe don't like it, as much as we feel um, like this may be disrespectful, the fact of the matter is we're passing things on to the next generation too. And it's part of being a broken human being. And we have to be willing to look at these, these patterns. And they're things that are kind of unwritten rules for our family. They're not usually actively taught. They're usually just picked up and caught. And maybe you're having a hard time thinking, like, what are you really even talking about? What do these look like? Um, I want to throw a picture up here of um, Pete Scazzaro in his book. He, he, uh, sorry it's so small. Hopefully you can see some of these. But he just gives some examples of what these unwritten rules might be in your family. And he kind of gives ten categories and, and for, you know, your family commandments. And maybe you can relate to some of these. Maybe, you know, maybe money is the best source of security. Maybe that's something that you learned through growing up in your family or or avoid conflict at all costs. That's one that I learned in my family, and I still wrestle and am trying to work through today. Uh, maybe it's, you know, that sadness is a sign of weakness, or, you know, that, that success is making lots of money, and, and you can, we'll leave those up for a little while, and you can read through those or take a picture of them and look at them later. But these are the things that we're talking about, kind of the unwritten family rules, the patterns of the way we live that our families pass on to us. I think this Christmas season, and as you go through um, this new year ahead of you, if you pay attention to what's going on inside of you and if you pay attention to what's happening around you at the Christmas, uh, family Christmas gatherings, you might see some of these things kind of bubbling up to the surface. And I think God calls us when we see that to pay attention and to, to, call it, to, to think about them and to identify those things in our life. And if we are able to pay attention of that, then we're able to identify them. Now we've got to do something with them, okay? So we've identified something, now what? And that's the second thing. I think that we have to, like Joseph did, embrace a big view of God. As you encounter these things, you have to have a big view of God to walk through them. You have to believe that he's bigger and more powerful than these things um, that were passed down to you from your family. He, it's bigger than the pain and bigger than the struggle, big enough to use the brokenness in you and the brokenness in your family to accomplish what he wants in you and through you. And this view of God, having a big view of God, is what gives us the courage and the hope to walk into these things because it's not easy and it's usually pretty painful. But it's how we move forward. We have to go back a little bit to be able to move forward. And, and we can help our view of God to grow in, in a few different ways. And uh, maybe just some that popped into my mind this week were sometimes we have to look back on our life and we have to, sh- have to remember where has God shown up. And we have to remind ourselves that God is faithful and God shows up in our lives. It reminds us how big he is and his involvement in us. Maybe we have to just spend some time looking through God's word and reminding ourselves of the truths that we find there, that he's good, that we sang about this morning, that he's powerful, that he's faithful, that he keeps his promises, that he's trustworthy. And sometimes to increase our view of God and how big he is, we have to be willing to step out in faith in some way. And when we aren't sure how it's going to go and God shows up, we can't help but have an enlarged, a, a greater view of how big and how powerful he is. And when we do that, when we can embrace this big view of God, it allows us, that's what helps allow us to, number three, to enter into this loss that we've experienced. Sin robs us from something that God has designed for us to experience, whether that's joy or peace or love or acceptance or purpose or belonging or intimacy. We get robbed of those things. And so in order to move through these issues in our families, we have to grieve maybe some of the things that we lost along the way. And that can be a tough process, and to be quite honest, um, it's one that I'm continuing to learn more and more about. Um, I would say seven years ago when I came here, I knew very little next to nothing about it. Um, but learning what's it look like to, 
to experience loss, to identify it, to sit with it, to let God um, speak into that loss and into that pain in our lives. Um, but you're going to need some help to do that. This is not something you want to do on your own and in isolation. Um, maybe there's someone in your small group, maybe a small group leader that can, that can um, help walk with you in that. One of us pastors maybe can help you with that. Um, there's a lot of people in our church that have walked into many of these things, and maybe we can connect you with someone um, who's walking through a similar thing and help you to walk through that as well. Because when we're able to enter this grief and enter this loss, we're able to, to, um, to change the thinking that's been ingrained in us. We're able to, to, to see what's not true and replace it with what is true. And when we start to believe what's true instead of the lies that have been ingrained in us, then we too can change the family pattern with God's help. We can change some of the family patterns that have been passed down to us through our families with God's help. Just like God used Joseph right, and, and helped him in, to change this fa- the patterns in his story, he can do the same in us. And, and God wants to do that in your life. He wants to take your story and he wants to use your story, whatever it is, to shape you and to mold you into who he created you to be. And he wants you to use you to make a difference in your family and the lives around you and in your community. He wants to, as we saw at the beginning, he wants to use your family story to accomplish his good plan in you and through you. So don't walk around the rest of your life wearing a bunch of ugly Christmas sweaters, trying to pretend that they're not there, that you're, they're hidden. <laughs> doesn't work, trust me. <laughs> All right, But let's face these ugly sweaters in our lives that our families have, have given us and, and with God's help change them into something that is, that is beautiful and powerful and that is life-changing in our lives and in the lives of those around us. Let's be willing to walk backward in order to be able to move forward and not stay stuck where we are and change maybe what we pass to the next generation. Let me pray and ask God to help us to do that this Christmas season. Father, we thank you that you are a good, good father as we sang a little bit earlier. And and God, thank you that um, you love us and that you don't leave us alone. You don't leave us in our brokenness, but you want to take those things and redeem those things and use those things for good. And God, I know for many here that probably sounds impossible. And sometimes I feel that same way. But I can't deny what I know is true and what your word says about who you are and about what you long to do in our lives. And so God, I pray this Christmas season as we enter into probably time with our families and enter maybe into some of the memories and the things that we've experienced along the way, I pray that you'd help us to be willing to to look at those things that we've been given that maybe we didn't want or didn't ask for, and that we would be willing to not just try to ignore them or not just try to stuff them or not just try to hope they go away on their own, but God, be willing with your help to face them, to trust you and, and who you are and, and how big you are and to, to walk into that with the help of those who know and love you and um, can help us walk through that. And God, help us to see and to identify and to change these patterns that we've been given, and God, help us not to pass them along to the next generation. And we love you, and we thank you for the hope that we have because of your son that we celebrate this season. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.